All right, guys. I know we're uh, still grabbing some sheets and getting all our materials collected. Um, okay, I think I'm louder now. <laughs> I know we're grabbing some sheets and getting our materials collected, but I'm going to go ahead and get us started so that we'll have hopefully some time at the end for you to ask any specific questions. So this is, uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, number two of six on arcing through Romans 8. And so if you missed last week, uh, you did miss a good bit of content, uh, but we'll try to make it to where you can follow along. Um, so I'll go ahead and get us started. So arcing. Um, if you didn't hear me a second ago, we've got basically three materials that are over here. One of them's probably gone now, which is the cheat sheet. Uh, that's the one in the middle. There's a sheet uh, from last week's passage, which is the passage we're actually going to arc together today. And then there's one for next week uh, so that you know what you'll be doing throughout the week between now and next Sunday. Uh, all of these are available on the church center where I posted uh, yesterday. So you can grab them there. All right, so this is lesson two. And like I said, we're not really learning anything new. All of this is just going to be review and you watching in practice how arcing works. So if you were out last week, I think the best thing that you could do, and this probably actually would be true even for those who were here, is to get the cheat sheet in front of you, get the Romans 8, 1 through 4 in front of you, and follow along. Uh, and whenever I say I'm gonna, that I think the relationship is these two things, read the cheat sheet, see what that relationship means, and try to think through it. The other thing is that as we go through this demonstration, if you ever were like, why did you do that? Just stick your hand up in the air, and, uh, and I'll, I'll try to stop and call. My goal by the end of this is that you feel more confident about the understanding the overall flow of the book of Romans, that you have increased clarity having watched me do an arc in practice, and that you've had the opportunity to ask questions at the end. I really hope that that happens, and then I don't run out of time, so we'll see. All right, so just a quick recap. How do we arc? Well, arcing is a graphical Bible study tool for following and displaying an author's flow of thought. You can see that over here. Oop, go back. And then how do we arc? We do it in two steps. Since what we're trying to do is trace the flow of thought, we break a passage down into the individual ideas, or what's called propositions, and then we begin to display how those propositions relate to each other. First, individual propositions, and then groups of propositions. And so by the end of it, we have a full outline of how every single idea in that text supports the main point of the text. How do you identify the main point? That's in a couple weeks. How do you break it down into propositions? That's next week. Right now, we're just focusing on the logical relationships and what that looks like in practice. Now, the first thing I wanted to do before we did Romans 8, 1 through 4, is just to give you a brief kind of here's where you are map in regards to the overall flow of the book of Romans. Romans can really be broken down into three sections. Romans 1 to 8 is Paul's gospel, how the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. 9 to 11 is about whether or not God's 
promises to Israel have failed due to their current statement of unbelief. And then Romans 12 through 16 is, okay, well then how should we live? And so you, of course, are at the end of that first section. Now Romans 1 through 8 really can be broken into two parts. The first part is Romans 1 through 4, and the second part is Romans 5 through 8. But it's all one big, continuous argument. Now, what I want you to stop and think about for just a second, try to put yourself in the shoes of a Jew or a God-fearing proselyte at the turn of the first century. You grew up seeing God's people submit themselves to the law. You read Psalm 119 over and over about how the law leads to life and it's beautiful and all these things. And now here comes this teaching that says, no, righteousness comes apart from the law. To you, that would sound like blasphemy. And so now Paul needs to defend that gospel. And so we see his thesis in 116 through 17, for the gospel, uh, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then he says, as it is written. So this is not new. This is actually faithful to the Old Testament. And then he breaks that into two sections. The first section is how God's righteousness is revealed apart from works of the law and through faith in Jesus Christ. The second part is how righteousness by faith apart from the law gives us full hope and assurance. And you are at the very end of that argument. That's where Romans 8 is following. And so what he does in the beginning of Romans 5 is he says that in the second Adam, we are fully justified in Christ's accomplishment apart from works of the law. And that even our sin magnifies God's grace. Now, you can pick this up in the New Testament that it seems like a lot of people were confused about Christian teaching. That they were saying to sin intentionally. Or to throw the law in the trash can. And that's not what Paul's teaching at all. And so there becomes this dialogue between Paul and his potential opponents and an actual answer from the Bible and sometimes even the Old Testament. And before you go, oh, those silly opponents, think about somebody who is humbly submitting to God, trying to get over these obstacles in their own heart. And naturally, as people who know they should be good, these obstacles also exist in our heart. So this is what he says, we are fully justified in Christ. Okay, so does that mean that we should in sin intentionally? No. We were raised with Christ. Does being free from the law mean we should sin intentionally? No. The freedom from the law results in righteousness. Wait, wait. Freedom from the law results in righteousness? Does that, why do we need to be freed from the law? I thought the law was good. Does that mean that the law is sin? No, the law is not sin. The law reveals sin in us. It reveals the enemy encamped within us, which leads to death. So this law, which was meant to give life, 
Are you saying that which was meant to give life actually gives death instead? No. The problem is that the law is spiritual, and we are flesh. Therefore, when we hear God's law, a war is revealed in our bodies. The reign of God's spiritual law and the reality of every time we want to do good, we see the wickedness within us. It's a, it's a law in itself. And these two things are exposed within us. The problem's not the law. The problem's our flesh. And the law reveals this. The law is holy and good. And so this tension, this war between the law, or sorry, the flesh and the spirit is what you're stepping into in Romans 8, 1 through 4. So for example, this is what Schreiner says in his commentary. This is a summary of where Romans 7 uh, drops off. The law, which was meant to give life, although good, cannot be the agent of transformation and renewal. Since the law itself bestow, doesn't bestow the ability to keep its commands. The law, apart from the spirit, doesn't transform, but it kills. Now, what I hope is that your brain is starting to recognize that the word righteousness has more in mind than just guilt. But actually, life of righteous behavior that thing the law was supposed to produce. And one of the things that we see happen at the end of Romans 7 is Paul says, well, who's going to free me, wretched man I am? Praise be to God through Christ Jesus who gives us the victory. But it's ambiguous. It's not totally clear on how that victory comes. All right, so now that's where we're starting Romans 8, 1 through 4. So I'm going to pull it up. And I'm going to arc it in front of you guys. And I'm just going to think out loud so you can see the way that I would do this. And again, I encourage any questions if you have them. All right, so I've broken the passage down. Now, the first thing I want to admit to you is that I changed something. I broke your passage down, and uh, I noticed one thing that I would say now I don't agree with. So one of the things I had on here is as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. On your sheet, those are all one thing. But as I looked at it, and specifically looked at it in the Greek, I recognized that as an offering for sin actually describes the sending. It has nothing to do with this part down here. And so I separated those two out. So if you're like, hey, what that, that's why. Okay. So whenever I'm arcing a passage, one of the first things I'm doing is I'm trying to group the individual arcs and then start seeing how they form large collections of thought. So the first thing that I would look for is what I would just call low-hanging fruit. What are two things that on a micro level are very clearly related to each other? All right, so let's take this one. This one stands out to me. Actually, let me, let me pause really quickly. I want to read the whole passage, and then I want to pray for us. All right, so in light of this law, this principle of the spirit, and this principle of sin within us. God, you say there's no condemnation. And that the law that, or the spirit, the, the spirit that justifies and what Christ accomplishes where the law has failed is also the one who gives 
life. Real salvation. I pray, Lord, that you'd give me help to be clear. you help me to manage the time well so that you would help your people to understand and that we would be humbly submitted to your law and to your word and to your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, when you hear law there, don't think Moses' commandments. By law, he means a principle, right? Like the law of gravity. He's thinking like a principle. Every time I try to do good, evil comes. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. All right. So when I'm looking at this passage, I'm looking for some things that clearly are kind of working in tandem together. Small little relationships. So for example, one of the ones that jumps out to me at the bottom, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Does anybody want to throw out what logical relationship that sounds like? Just blurt it out. All right. I'll do it. Um, this, to me, is a very clear negative positive. We do not walk according to the spirit, or according to the flesh, but we do walk according to the spirit. That they're two sides of the same coin. I see some people very excited. Um, let, let me give you guys a little bit of encouragement. I've been doing this for like 10 years, and every now and then I'll go and take a course with an instructor just to resharpen my understanding because it's got a little dull, and then we have to do assignments and submit them, and we get to see the instructors. Almost every single time I get something different than what they had. And the truth is there's no such thing as a right arc. There isn't an authoritative, this is how the passage breaks down. There is such thing as a wrong arc in which you use the tools incorrectly or you try to say a logical relationship exists where it doesn't exist. That's wrong. But the cool thing about doing this together is that we get to have discussions about what is the author saying and how is he saying it. There is no better discussion to be having as a group of believers submitting ourselves to God's word. So if something here is a little bit different, I may be wrong. I don't think so, but it could be. And you might, but you might ask something, and I might go, you know what, that makes more sense than what I was thinking. But we're actually having dialogue about the text, which is awesome. All right, so we do not walk according to the spirit, but according to the flesh. All right, so it's a very clear negative positive. The other thing I'm noticing here is with this, this uh, who do not walk, that's clearly like defining something up above it, right? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not, okay, so that's, that's describing us. Who are we? So what is the relationship where one thing is describing either the whole previous thought or just one word within the thought? That's called an idea and an explanation. And so that's what I would put here. 
an idea, an explanation. All right. So these are just some low-hanging fruit that I'm seeing. I'm looking for some more. Uh, another one that I see is when I scroll up here to the top. I see, therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, that already sends my, uh, my signals, I'm probably looking at a ground. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, one of the things that stands out to me is that a lot of times, sentences represent groups of thought. Not always, but most of the time. So, for example, here's a group, here's a group, and then the rest of this is kind of a group. And so, what is he saying here? There is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus for. Almost every time, that's a ground. He's giving an explanation for why there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free, is what he's saying. So it's another one where it's just a little bit of low-hanging fruit. All right. Now, one of the things I noticed here is a little bit of a group. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. The law couldn't do it. And there's almost like this implied after that, because it was weakened through the flesh. How do these two phrases relate? For what the law could not do, weak as it was for the flesh. Well, this one is explaining why the law couldn't do it. You see that? That's the one that makes sense. And one of the ways that I see that is you see how in red, there's this little because, and that's the same thing on your cheat sheet. A lot of times, you can supply that word that's in red there, or any of those words, and if it makes sense in your head, yeah, that's the logic that he's using, then you know, okay, that's probably right. For example, if I were to put comparison and throw the word like, for what the law could not do, like weak as it was, that doesn't make any sense. Or, if the law could not do, then, okay, that doesn't, so it's not a conditional. But then when I circle back around to example for ground, for what the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh. Totally makes sense. Y'all seeing the logic there? All right. Now, I want to ask how these relate to each other. Now, this one's a little bit tricky, and it's because of the order of the words. So sometimes you have to put words back in an order that makes more sense before we can think through it. So normally in English, we say subject, verb, and then the predicate or the direct object or whatever. That's how we speak. But he did something different. He told you what the law couldn't do. He told you basically what God did before he ever said the subject and the verb, right? Here's the subject and the verb God did. What did God do? What the law could not do. Why couldn't the law do it? Because it was weakened through the flesh. And so I would say that this is an idea explanation because up here is explaining what it is that God did. The order's just a little wonky. God did it. What did God do? What the law could not do. Weak as it was the flesh. 
I know I'm going fast. I'm trying to make sure that we can end in like 10 minutes. <laughs> so this is very, very quick. Uh, and thank you to all of you who did reach out and ask questions and stuff. I know we talked about the fog. I promise right now, as confused as you feel, there are things last week that you know better than you, or you know them better today than you did last week. That's what we mean by the fog just moves. All right. So now another one that I'm looking at, and we talked about this at the beginning, is I've got two things here. Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Now, this isn't as obvious in English. But in the Greek, and you can see this in, if you just compare multiple translations of English, an offering for sin in the likeness of sinful flesh. Both of those are describing sending. How did he send them? In the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. He sent him as an offering for sin. Now, those are two ideas. Do either one of them define the other one? No. They're both supplying two independent ideas. So there's a coordinate relationship. Does the order of them matter? No. You could say one before the other. It doesn't change anything. And so what these are is a series. This is two ideas that together describe and provide information on how he sent him. So what does that mean? He condemned, oh, sorry. Yep, he condemned sin in the flesh. How did he condemn sin in the flesh? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. So, what is the relationship in which we have an action and a description of how that action is performed? On your cheat sheet, that would be called an action and then the manner. All right, boom. And I gotta flip it because the action is down here. The manner's up here. All right. Now what's another one that I see? Now I'm looking at whole groups of thoughts. God condemns sin in the flesh. How did he do it? By sending his own son as an offering for sin. So I'm considering this whole idea, God condemning sin in the flesh by sending his son as an offering for sin and in its likeness. And then down here I see, so that. So that is almost always an indication of purpose. Why somebody did something. So why did God condemn sin in the flesh? This tells us how he did it. Why did he do it? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what's the relationship between this? Well, the first one is an action. And the second one is a purpose. The action is that he condemns sin in the flesh. Why did he do it? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then, when I back out, I see that what's the main idea here? That God did something. 
What did he do? Well, I've got some supporting information that he did what the law couldn't do. But the other thing that he did is all this stuff down here. And so the main idea is that God did it. The explanation for that idea, namely what it is, what God did, is down here. So this is, again, an idea and an explanation. All right, now we need to back out one more time, and we need to ask, how do these two groups relate to each other? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Four. All right. I think you can have two things here. You can have one of two things. The question is, what does this for mean? Is it another because? Sometimes the word for is actually providing an explanation. So which one is it? And here's how I'm thinking through this. If you put ground here, I don't think that's wrong. I think that it could totally be okay. I actually put explanation. Let me tell you why. Because I don't believe this activity down here is providing a new reason for what's happening up here. But instead, this activity down here is describing how the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. He's giving you more information on what he's already said versus giving you a new reason for why what he said was true. And so that's why I would choose this. That said, if you put ground, totally okay. Totally okay. And this, again, is a cool way that we can talk about the text. All right. So, now you've seen how I've arced it. Let me show you what my paraphrase looks like to see if you can make sense of how each of these relationships are displaying themselves. Let me zoom out a little bit. I think that putting a paraphrase with the keywords in there is immensely helpful. So here's the passage. Here's the way that I would paraphrase it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. I couldn't paraphrase that. That was about as good as it gets, and we just left it that way. Because the power of the Spirit has broken you free from the power of sin and death in our bodies. This is how. The righteousness and life the law could not produce because it was made inoperable by our flesh. That righteousness, God produced. Law couldn't do it. God did it. How did he do it? By sending his own son, both as a participant in the old era of flesh. This is what we mean by likeness of sinful flesh. Christ wasn't a sinner, but in the ways that a sinner lives, in the old era of sin and flesh and death, he participated in all of it, sickness, disease, weakness, death, without sinning. So he sent him in the likeness of the old era, and as a sacrifice for sin, what am I hearing? Oh, you know it's probably, yep, okay, there you go. At least we got the ark up there. All right, 
Um, and as a sacrifice for sin's penalty, God emptied his condemnation on sinful f- flesh. Sorry, God emptied his condemnation of sinful flesh on the likeness of sinful flesh so that by breaking sin's power over us in the death of Christ, we can now fulfill the law of God in our bodies. That is, those who no longer live in captivity to sin, but in the power of the Spirit. Now, I want to be really honest with you guys. This is why our gang is so valuable. My, my understanding of Romans 8 changed by arcing this passage last night. Let me show you what I mean. What does this word because mean? Think about that. There's no condemnation for us. And then he says, because the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You ever thought about that? There's no condemnation for you because the Spirit has set you free. That's not how we talk. We say there's no condemnation for us because Jesus died for us. But that's not what Paul just said. He said there's no condemnation for you because the Spirit has set you free from sinning. You talk like that. I don't. Let me give you another one that threw me off. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Why didn't he say in him? If he's only talking about removing our guilt, why did he say in us? Here's what I think Paul is saying. When we think about salvation, we exclusively think about it in terms of forensic righteousness, courtroom righteousness. But when you think about the logic of Romans 7 and everything that Paul was arguing about, it's not about just that. Yes, we are justified fully from our guilt in Christ, but part of the argument is, well, how come the law can't make us practically righteous? And that's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with the reality of you being actually justified in a forensic basis is proofed by you being set free from sin. There's no condemnation. What's the proof that you live in the spirit and not in the flesh? So, And the reason that that's the case is because once, when the law interacts with our sinful flesh, it's like a, a stick hitting a beehive. It just stirs it up. But when Christ, when we're united with Christ and he dies, he not only takes our guilt, but he actually takes our relationship to the law, our sinful flesh's relationship to the law, into the grave with him thereby breaking it. And now, we're no longer married to that, we're now united to another one so that we can finally please God. Now think about what you know of the Old Testament. God's promises to Israel were that one day he would by his spirit 
write their law on his law on their hearts. That he would change them from the inside out. You would no longer have to tell your neighbor what the commandments of God were. They would be written on him. That's what he's saying is happening here. That the letter of the law has been fulfilled, but the actual spirit of the law, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, is fulfilled in us because we actually become righteous people. Because the power of sin has been broken and the spirit has been given, and that is the proof that you are now justified entirely in Christ. Now, just want to be honest, this scares the mess out of me. So it forces me to look inward rather than the way that we normally talk. So I want to read something that uh, Piper said when talking about this, and then I'll stop talking because I should have a second ago. All right, here's what he said when preaching on this passage. Now, I want to stop and make sure that you're hearing what I believe the Scripture is saying. Because it's not commonly said, but our lives hang on it. There is a real sense in which our justification depends on our sanctification. There is a sense in which whether we are acquitted before God depends on whether or not the law of the Spirit of life has freed us from the law of sin and death. But how can this be? Romans 5.1 says we have been justified by faith. The sentence of not guilty has already been given. And it was given to those who have faith. How can I say in the past, a sentence of not guilty is dependent on the present process of sanctification? And how can I say that to experience justification, one must not only have faith, but also be freed by the Spirit from the power of sin? He goes on and gives a long explanation. Put it on the church center. I want to give you his conclusion. Oh, I hope that you grasp what the Word is saying. For I want so much not to be misunderstood in either of two possible ways. May no one react and say, oh, that can't be. All you have to do is believe in Christ as Savior. You don't have to overcome sin by the power of the Spirit. That error distorts and cheapens faith, contradicts the teaching of Romans 8, 1-2, and runs the risk of hearing Jesus say on the judgment day, depart from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. But there is another equally serious error. Someone may say, Oh no, not another legalistic load to carry. I cannot bear any more burdens of do's and don'ts. I give up. The Christian life is impossible. But wait a minute. You don't want to believe in a Christ who makes no difference in your life, do you? Who wants a Jesus who, has, who is so nothing that all he can do is produce people who mouth religious platitudes but think, feel, and act just like the world? We don't want that. Yet we know we are imperfect people and we still sin. And we want the Holy Spirit to reign more fully in our lives. But we despair. Do not let Satan overcome you with, a, with counsels of despair. God does not call you to earn your justification, but to rest in his promises. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or with hearing with faith? Have you begun with the Spirit or are you now ending with the flesh? Remember this, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus liberates us from the power of sin and death, not by works of the law, but by faith and by trusting daily in the promises of God. So what he's emphasizing is that justification, real salvation, is not a moment in time, but something that stays with a person throughout their life. The proof of their no condemnation 
is that they are now being led by the Spirit. All right, I'll pray for us. Sorry we didn't have time for questions. I know we're a little bit long. Father, I pray for any of us that are carnal, just like the world, that we would hear soberly that if we live like that, we're going to die. Spiritual death. And I pray, Lord, for the tender conscience that no condemnation would communicate clearly to them that they have an invincible attorney who pleads their case and it is impossible for them to be condemned. And that same righteousness supplies for them freedom from sin. In Christ's name.